Lord, we do praise and lift up your most holy name. You are perfect, holy, righteous, faithful, and just God. And Lord, while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son to die that we might have eternal life. We just thank you. We praise you. We worship your name. We ask as we go to your word right now that you would be our teacher. Your Holy Spirit would minister to every heart that is here. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It is great to have you here. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. So we, if you're new to Calvary Chapel, we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the Bible. Let me encourage you to read Genesis 16 for this coming Wednesday night, because we're going right through the Old Testament on Wednesday. We finished James chapter 5 last Sunday, so we just finished up James, and so we're starting a new book this morning, a new letter really, when you, when you really look at it. And whenever we do a new letter, I'm going to take a, a, a good amount of time to give you guys the context, who wrote the letter, who the letter was being written to, what was going on at the time. It's called the context, because you've heard me say before, if you take a text out of context, all you got left is a con, right? Amen? And so the point is that for us to fully grasp and understand First and Second Peter that we'll be going through over the next couple of months, it's very important that we grasp and understand what was going on at the time, who the letter was being written to. So we'll look at the context of the letter itself, I'll give you an outline of the letter, and then we'll take a look at the first few verses of chapter 1. Now, the letter was written in about 63 or 64 AD. I don't usually get that technical on the dates, but it's very important to let me tell you why. Because this is the time when Caesar Nero has risen to power. And if you were here before, we've talked about how Caesar Nero was a wicked and vile man. I believe probably a demon-possessed man. And he was so wicked and so vile, he literally declared all-out war with the government behind him against Christianity. That was the time that Christians began to be fed to lions and they were literally killed for sport. And Caesar Nero was behind it. He was such a wicked man and so out of control. You've heard that story of him that he you know, played his fiddle while Rome burned. He actually blamed that on the Christians as a way to then bring greater persecution upon them. He would even take Christians and he would cover them in tar or pitch and he would put them in his garden and set them on fire and use them as lanterns, if you will, as he would ride through his garden in his chariot without any clothes on. He was a madman. Now, I'm telling you all this so you understand that when this letter is being written by Peter, and we'll talk about him in a moment, Peter is writing this letter, and Peter is a pillar of the faith, as we know. He's a man that's been used mightily by God. He wasn't always that way, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he writes this letter, and he's writing to Christians who are living during this time of Nero, and things are really starting to heat up. They've already faced great persecution. The persecution's only getting worse. And in light of that, this letter is being written to encourage Christians in the midst of difficulty, trials, and suffering. Guys, maybe we're not suffering the same deal of persecution. Certainly we're not, as they were in the times of Nero. But you know what? We go through trials and difficulties as well. And this letter is a great exhortation to us. The lessons being communicated to Christians some 2,000 years ago have great application for every one of us in this room. Caesar Nero 
was during his reign that the Apostle Paul was martyred. And not long after that, Peter was killed as well. And so we know this is toward the end of Peter's life. These are the last letters that he writes, the last communication that he has. And he's writing to encourage this church, again, that is facing great persecution. He's writing to those who had already endured persecution. How had they endured persecution? They had been chased from their homes already. They had already left Jerusalem and been dispersed throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. We'll talk about that in a minute. And they were dispersed throughout the land, and as they were sent out, it seemed like, hey, we're being persecuted, but in in reality, God was bringing about the Great Commission. Because all of them were camping out in Jerusalem when they weren't leaving, so God brought persecution to get the word out. Amen? And so God got them traveling, and as they were going out, they began to share. But guess what? With that came persecution from those who did not know God. So those receiving this letter had suffered persecution, but the suffering was about to be intensified in this letter as a word of encouragement in the midst of that great suffering. Now who better to speak about God's grace than Peter? If you know anything about Peter, you know that in Scripture, he's a man that we, have a, we know a great deal about, and we can learn a great deal from. He's one who had, who had experienced the depths of God's grace like few others have. You see, while at this point he is, a, again, a, a pillar of the faith, Peter wasn't always that way. He had, you know, of course, early on, he was the one who, because of his great boldness and his you know, his pride and his impetuousness was constantly sticking his foot in his mouth. I often refer to him when I was a youth pastor. I used to say, he's missed you, ready, fire, aim, right? He was constantly speaking first. He was constantly jumping out. Now, we know later he's going to be the one in Acts chapter 2 that God uses on the day of Pentecost to get up and boldly proclaim the gospel and see 3,000 souls added to the kingdom in a single day. But before he got to that place, we know that Peter had been to the depths of despair and had seen the greatness and the grace of of our God. His name is mentioned in the Gospels more times than any name in the Gospels except for Jesus. Jesus speaks more to Peter in the Gospels than he speaks to anyone else. In the Gospels we see this, that Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other other disciple. He talked to him more and rebuked him more, right? We also know that Peter was the only disciple who dared to rebuke Jesus. By the way, bad idea. (laughs) Amen? Bad idea, Peter. Peter confessed Jesus more boldly and accurately than any other disciple, but then he denied Jesus more forcefully and publicly than any other disciple. He didn't have a medium. He didn't have a middle ground. He was either on fire for God and sold out with great boldness or running away and cursing God and acting like he didn't know who he was. This is Peter swinging back and forth. But this is Peter prior to Pentecost and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, as I said, Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple, but he also told Peter, referring to him, told him, get thee behind me, what? Satan. By the way, if the Lord refers to you as Satan, that also is not good. (laughs) Amen? So some other notable mentions of this man, Peter. When Jesus... When Jesus woke up early in the morning to pray before the sun came up, Simon Peter led the other disciples to hunt him down to tell Jesus what he should do. 
Peter did that. Let's go find Jesus so we can tell him what to do. That's in Mark chapter 1. He put the nets out when the Lord told him to, and guess what? He brought in a great catch. He went on a a unique outreach trip with the other disciples in Matthew. He stepped out of the boat in the raging storm and walked on water. People like to talk about the fact that he sank, but at least Peter got out of the boat. Amen? Nobody else got out of the boat. Peter walked on water for a second. How many of us can say that? So Peter did step out. Peter did get out of the boat. Peter was a man of great faith, but a man who, because of his impetuousness, because of his pride, fell many, many times. Peter was one of the three that was taken away with the Lord up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. He got to see Jesus in his glorified body with Moses and Elijah with him. But if you remember what happened right after that, he says, okay, Lord, let, this is good to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for you. You just put Jesus on the same plane with the law and the prophets, guys. He's the fulfillment. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the prophets. He is the word of God. He is the one true prophet that can bring sinful man back to holy God. Amen? And what happened? Almighty God from heaven had to interrupt Peter. He said, Peter, this is my beloved son. Hear him. That's God speak for shut up, Peter. He's the creator of the universe. Why don't you sit down, be quiet, and listen? Amen. Peter. Nobody else here can relate to Peter, right? (laughs) He's also the one that asked Jesus after encountering a rich young ruler. So what do we get if we follow you? Paraphrased. You know, he's always coming. Then he started arguing later, who was greatest among the disciples? Well, I'm greater than you. We all know that. You know, he already gave me a nickname. My name was Simon. He changed it to Peter. And he said, you know, I'm the Petra. Jesus said that. And you are Petros. I am the big rock and you're a little rock. You know, I'm a chip off the old block, guys. I mean, you know, hey, you guys, they get no nicknames. How about me? That's Peter. But you know what? All of those things. When Jesus said to Peter, Peter, tonight you're going to deny me three times. For the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. What did Peter say? No way, Lord. That will never happen. He said not, the exact uh, wording was, not so, Lord. You never put those three words together. <laughs> Amen? Not so, Lord. He can't be Lord if you're saying not so to him. Amen? He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. This is Peter. This is our guy. You know what, there's no real description, I just, I, I, I think of him as being a big burly guy, don't you? Just kind of running through brick walls when necessary. We know later he lopped off somebody's ear, remember Malchus? And he obviously wasn't a very good swordsman because he only got his ear. I think he was going for his neck and he just, you know, <laughs> just reached out and not very good Peter. Now we know why you weren't catching a whole lot of fish there later on in the end. You can't aim very well. But this is Peter, and this is the same Peter who wrote this letter. But you know what? I just love the example of God's grace because he did deny the Lord three times. But remember when he denied the Lord three times, the third time he denied the Lord, he was in the courtyard, and he was warming himself by the enemy's fire. By the way, you don't want to do that. 
but he was warming himself by the enemy's fire. There's a word there, anthrokia, which means hot coal fire. It's only in the Bible twice. I'll tell you the other time in just a minute. He's warming himself by the hot coal fire. He's already denied the Lord twice. Jesus is being brought out, and a young girl says to him, you're one of his followers. And Peter curses, literally curses the name of Jesus, says he doesn't know him, and at that moment, he looks up and his eyes meet the eyes of our Savior who comes out beaten and battered as he's being led away to the cross of Calvary. You want to talk about the depths of despair. Peter goes away, the Bible says, and weeps bitterly. You know what I love? So many things I love about our God. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he said to those who were there, he said to the woman who was there, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I have risen. How much do you think those words meant to Peter, who the last time he saw the Lord, he had denied him and cursed him and went away and praised God for his incredible grace, amen? that he would mention him by name. Go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I have risen. What a God of love and grace and mercy that we serve. He has had such an experience of the grace of God. He has tasted of his grace. And what's awesome is he denies the Lord three times, but when you get to John chapter 21, do you remember what happens in John 21? He denied the Lord three times, and for the second time in the Bible, you have the word anthrokia, which means hot, coal fire and peter is sitting by the hot coal fire now guys i don't know about you but there are certain smells that if i smell them they take me back to another time how about you every time i smell wet grass reminds me of playing football because i played from time i was eight till i was 22 and you know you're covered in wet grass all the time i smelled a a plant just recently that it was a, a plant like i had when we were eight years old in my backyard you know what, only a matter of 40 or, you know, just a few dozen days, a few weeks had gone by, and a hot coal fire has a very pungent smell. And the last time Peter had smelled that, he was denying the Lord for the third time. This time, he's sitting around that same fire, now with the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus who had, again, had said, you're going to deny me three times, now asked Peter a question, how many times? Three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter denied him three times by the anthrokia, the hot coal fire. Now, three times he confesses him. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, then Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my lambs. Peter, feed my sheep. You just love the incredible grace that we see being poured out on Peter. I'm telling you all of this that you understand the man writing this letter has a great grasp on the grace of God like few other men who've ever lived. Amen? And now after being filled with the Holy Spirit, he is now writing to those who are in the midst of persecution in a time of great suffering, and he's able to write to them from a position of, look, I understand God's grace because I've experienced it. And let me tell you how gracious our God really is. Let me tell you. So this letter, and, and let me encourage you, if you're, if you're ministering to somebody and they're going through a time of suffering and difficulty, can I encourage you to have them sit down and read First and Second Peter. These are words of encouragement and exhortation for those who are suffering, those who are going through a very difficult time. 
One final note on Peter that I believe gives us even greater understanding of the context of these letters is that Peter was the last one to see the Lord, again, when he was being led away to the cross, but he's the first one running to the tomb. And I love the heart of Peter that he did grasp and understand the grace of God because he heard those words, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter. And here's what I want to say to you this morning as we get into the text. And we look at the outline of the book itself. The Lord would say to you this morning, go tell the people of Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz, and especially whatever your name is, that I have risen. Amen? And he knows that you are here by divine appointment. And he loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you. And no matter what you're going through, no matter how much you've blown it in the past, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Amen? He's a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy. And as we go through this letter, I pray that you get a greater grasp of just how much and how faithful our Lord is. Now, one other thing that was said to Peter, if you recall this, the Lord told Peter at one point, Satan has asked for you, Peter. Satan came and asked for you by name, that he might sift you as wheat. Peter, he wants to crush you. You know what the Lord said? The Lord said, Peter, I prayed for you. I prayed that your faith would remain strong. You know what? Even though Peter didn't remain strong, his faith did remain strong. And then the Lord followed up with these words, which I believe absolutely played right into this letter that's being written. He said, Peter, when you come back, I want you to minister to my sheep. Peter, when you come back, I want you to strengthen the brethren. That's the direct quote. Guess what Peter's doing as he's writing this letter? He's writing this letter to Christians who are being persecuted, those who've had to be chased away from their homes, those who are going through great difficulty, and he writes these words filled with the Holy Spirit, and God is going to speak mightily through a man who have experienced God's grace, who knew of God's grace, and now he's going to share with them God's grace. Again, Peter, after Pentecost, became a mighty man of God. He became a man that was a tool in the hands of his master. Even though he had experienced failure in the past, now he had seen what God can do when you submit your life completely to the Lord. And it gives him the ability to better minister and pass on the grace of God to those who were being persecuted themselves. So, an overview of this great letter we're about to read over the next several months, these two letters actually, persecution can do one of two things to you. It can either cause you to grow or cause you to grumble. As you are persecuted, as you go through trials of life, it'll either be an opportunity for you to grow spiritually or an opportunity for you to become bitter. Guys, God is in control. Amen? And because he's in control, and because he's faithful, and because he loves you more than you will ever understand, we must come to a place that we say, Lord, though you slay me, yet will I trust in you. Just like Job said, have that same heart. In writing to these believers, again, he's going to remind them first of who they are, born-again believers, that they have a living hope. He's then going to exhort and encourage them. Now, the outline for the book itself Because he's really going to encourage them that their belief ought to be impacting their behavior. Guys, if we say we believe something but our behavior is not impacted, we really don't believe it. 
And so his exhortation is, okay, if you really believe this, guys, even in the face of persecution, stand for the Lord. And he will stand with you. And so over the next few weeks, these are the three major portions. We're first going to see in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2.12, the salvation of the believer. The belief of Christians. Then the second part of that section will see the sanctification of the believer. That God has called us to live holy lives. The second thing we'll see in a few weeks is the submission of the believer. So the salvation, the sanctification, we'll talk about that this morning, being set apart to God. The submission of the believer, again, believing in God, uh, our behavior being impacted. And then finally, the suffering of the believer. Man, I didn't sign up for suffering. Where was that in the Bible? How about all over the Bible? You better read it. Amen? It's in God's Word. And if I could share with you a theme verse that I believe is really the verse that would tell us what this entire letter is going to be about. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13 says this, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. That's the theme right there. If you memorize one verse in a text, memorize that one because it really tells us, don't be surprised when you go through difficulty. Don't be surprised. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake, for so they did the prophets who went before you. Jesus said that on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So guys, if we stand up for God, don't be surprised when they treat us like they treated his son sometimes. Amen? But guys, let's, let's love people the way he loved them. So finally, we are at the text, I promise. So the true source of peace is the title of the message this morning. The true source of peace. Now what is the true source of peace? It's not the absence of physical trials or persecution. Sometimes we think peace is the absence of war. The absence of difficulty. That's when I'll have peace. If your peace is based on your circumstances, you won't have peace very long. Amen? But you know what's great about our God? He gives us the peace that surpasses all understanding. It has nothing to do with our circumstances, but everything to do with where we stand with the Lord. We're also going to see not only the true source of peace, but the gracious work of God bringing peace to sinful man. In just one verse, we're going to see the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, and the work of the Son in verse, in verse 2. So let's begin. The true source of peace, not the absence of physical trials of persecution, but right standing before God. I'm going to tell you right now, we're only going to look at two verses this morning so you don't panic when you're looking at your watch going, man, he's still on verse 1. I know how you think. I know, I'm not dumb. All right? And we will pick up the pace next week, I promise. But I really thought it was so important that we're going to spend the next couple of months looking at these letters to really grasp who's writing it, who he's writing it to, what the context is. Because if we don't get that, we won't fully grasp the depths of this letter. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now in ancient letters, remember they were written on scrolls. So they would always write who the letter was from first. Otherwise, can you imagine every time you wanted to read a letter, if it was on a scroll, you have to, you know... Okay, Junior, go stand down there 15 feet away and unroll this whole thing so I can find out who it's from. They didn't do it that way. They would write right at the very top who the letter was from. Now understand, can you imagine when this letter was delivered 
and they opened it up and saw Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you that by this point, Peter's coming to the end of his life. He's a pillar in the Christian faith. He's been a man used mightily by God. God has used him to reach out to the Jews and Gentiles alike. God has used his words. God has filled him with his Holy Spirit. And he's become a man who every Christian on the planet knew who he was. And when that letter came, I guarantee you, it carried a great deal of weight with those who received it. Here they were in a place of persecution. Imagine as they maybe were hiding out and going from place to place in fear for their lives, hearing about the latest exploits of Nero and the government and how they were killing Christians, finding out about another friend or family member that was fed to the lions or the things that were going on. In the midst of that desperate time, here comes a letter from Peter, their father in the faith in a sense, a man of God, a godly example. He was well known to them. And again, I imagine as they undid the scroll, great comfort and encouragement to hear from this man who'd walk with God. You know, it's a great encouragement to me to hear from those who God has used in my life to disciple me during times of difficulty. Amen? Amen to that? You know, I remember sometime back, I don't know how he even knew, there was something going on. We actually had a young man here in our church who committed suicide. And I got a phone call from my pastor late at night just to minister to me. And it meant so much because he was a man who God had used to disciple me. He was a man who God had used so much in my life. And I imagine here they are in this time of great difficulty and trial. And here comes this letter from Peter. And this letter is going to carry a great amount of weight. And, that, and again, the Holy Spirit is the one who is writing this letter. He says they're an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter doesn't say, hey, it's your old friend, Peter. Hey, it's your fishing buddy, Peter. He says, the bird's having a good time. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, right? So maybe, you know. But he says here, an apostle. Now understand something. An apostle is one sent or commissioned by God with a specific calling or task. And guess what? Peter is an apostle called by God. So when he says an apostle, he's sharing with them, again, the weight of what he's about to say. He's not sharing this with them as a friend of theirs, even though he's their friend. He's writing it to them from the position of an apostle, one called by God. So these words are not the opinions of Peter, it's the word of God. Amen? By the way, 66 books, 40 authors, 3 continents, 3 languages, 1,500 years, one central theme, no contradictions, how's that possible? God wrote it. Amen? And when people say, oh, it's just the opinions of men, it's filled with contradictions, show me one. Amen? We need to stand up for the word of God. The word of God is perfect. Because God wrote it. And so we see here, he says to them, he's an apostle. Peter, again, as we've talked about before, was one who had his name changed by the Lord. His name was Simon. He changed it to Peter, which means Petros, or small, you know, chip off the old block, literally. And Jesus said, I am, upon this rock, I will build my church. And people have made that mistake to think that's Peter. And then they start to say, Peter was the first pope. No way. Jesus Christ alone is the central figure of the church. Amen? And he alone is the one who can deliver the word. His word. He is the word. Amen? 
And so we see her, but he says to him, you know what, Peter, I'm going to use you in a mighty way. And so he identifies the name that the Lord had given him with the calling that the Lord had given him to be an apostle, one sent out with a specific mission. So Peter was called by God, sent out by God, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So this is not his opinion. This is the word of God being delivered through a spirit-filled, called-out messenger and servant of God. It says there, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. The word pilgrim there means sojourner. And that word is a resident foreigner, someone who is a temporary resident, one who comes from a foreign country to dwell side by side with the natives but is never truly at home. What had made them pilgrims and sojourners? They were, because of the dispersion in Jerusalem, they all had to run for their lives. And because they had had to run for their lives, they were all in different cities now living, and where they lived, they were not at home. But guys, this is a picture of every single one of us. Because guys, this is not our home, amen? We are citizens of heaven. And the Bible tells us that we are aliens here. That's the word that's used for us. We are sojourners. We are like these pilgrims, and it's why we don't feel at home here, because this is not our home. This is our temporary dwelling place. And the same exhortation that he would give to them is the exhortation he would give to us. Guys, this isn't our home. We ought to not feel too comfortable here. Amen? We ought to not lay our roots too deep here. We ought to instead be worried about and focused on the eternity, the time that is to come. As Christians, our home is in heaven, and we are but strangers and foreigners dwelling, again, only in a place of where we'll be only for a temporary short amount of time living here among the natives. So Peter, by the Spirit, already encouraging them not to be consumed or overwhelmed by their trials. Why? Because it's all temporary. And here they are in the midst of it, and he goes, guys, you're foreigners there. You're pilgrims there. This is not your home. This is a temporary dwelling place. What God has for you is far better. Guys, you know how we can endure the suffering and the trials of life? is get our eyes on eternity. Get our eyes off of that which is temporary and put our eyes on that which is eternal. Set your mind on things above, Colossians 3, 2, not on things of the earth. Too often we're so focused on the world that we're having very little impact for heaven and eternity. Now, it's so easy for us to get thrown off by our circumstances though, isn't it? Isn't it? What's the answer? It's so easy. We can be in the greatest mood ever and someone dings our car and we're bummed. Is that true or not? Oh man, I was, everything was great and then that happened. And then we just go, and you know what? As Christians, our, we, again, we need to be thermostats, not thermometers. You know, a thermometer simply, simply reflects its surroundings, right? But we are thermostats. We ought to be impacting our surroundings, Amen. We ought to walk in with the the joy of the Lord and the glory of God and have impact on those around us. And Paul is exhorting them in the midst of this great trial. Look, you guys are pilgrims. You're foreigners. It's a temporary thing. Get your eyes on the Lord. Get your eyes on that which is eternal. The word dispersion there literally means scattering. And they were scattered through persecution. But you know, as I said before, what Satan means for evil, God will use for good. Because he tried to scatter them and all it did was push the gospel out to the known world. So Satan, he thinks he's smart, but compared to God, he's toast, right? 
Amen? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So the dispersion helped in the fulfilling of the great commission to go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. It says to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, each of these cities is in modern day Turkey. I don't know if we have the map or not. If we do, we can put it up there. Did, it, did we get it? No? There it is. So those were, that's where the cities were in that time. That's modern-day Turkey now. And so they had all fled for their lives from Rome, and they had run up there. And so that's where they all are. That's where the letter was written. And I want you to notice that this was a circular letter. What that means, it was written basically to all Christians. It was, you know, the book of, you know, the letter to, uh, to the Galatians is written to the Galatian church. So, read, you know, other letters, you know, at least were addressed to a specific church that may have been shared with others. But in this case, it was written to all of these people in all of these cities who had been chased away through persecution and now were facing potential death. And here comes this word of encouragement and exhortation from their father in the faith, a man who had experienced God's grace like few others, exhorting and encouraging them with the love and the grace and the mercy of God. To let them know that this is but temporary and what is eternal cannot be impacted by the world. Amen? So that brings us now to verse 2. And he's going to remind them who they are. We're going to finish off with this verse. And I'll tell you right now, if you underline verses in your Bible, you need to underline this verse. This verse right here, we're going to see the work of the Father, the work of the Holy Spirit in that order, and the work of the Son all in one verse on how it ought to impact the life of a believer. And the assurance it ought to give us. And the hope that we should have knowing that God is faithful. And it says there, so he's addressing these people that have been dispersed. They've been scattered. They're living in foreign cities. Even in the new foreign cities now, they're facing persecution. And here's what he says to them. He's going to remind them who they are. Here's who you guys are. You are, verse 2, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So we see God the Father, we see the Holy Spirit, and we see the blood of Jesus Christ. Now let's begin with that word elect. This is a word that throws a lot of people off. My prayer is that when you leave here this morning, this word will never be confusing to you ever again. Elect, here's what it means, chosen by God. Guess what? God chose you. Now, what did you do to deserve to be chosen by God? Well, I was just really good. You know, God needed me on his team. He looked down and said, oh, that guy, I need that guy right there. No, no, no. He chose us in spite of us, amen? But I want you to notice something here. And again, if you're here today and you hold to Reformed theology, God bless you, I love you, I count you as a brother in Christ, but we can disagree and happily disagree, all right? Okay, because it's not an essential of salvation. But let me say this. Let me say this very clearly. God chose, what does it say? According to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. What does that mean? God has always known who would be saved. Amen? You know why? Because God always knew everything. Amen? Nothing surprises God. God doesn't go, wow, I didn't see that coming. Wow. That doesn't happen, aren't you glad? 
Do you know the Bible says that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world? So before God created time and space, now you want to get a headache? Let me give you a headache. God created time and space. He's outside of time and space. So where is he then? He's outside of time and space. Well, where, where, what's outside of time and space? We're finite. We don't get it. Amen? We're finite man trying to understand infinite God. I am glad that I don't serve a God that I can fully understand because if I could fully understand him, he wouldn't be that great. Amen? And here's the scary part. Go see that movie Expelled if you haven't seen it yet. Because it is the arrogance of man to think man knows better than God. How foolish is that? The Bible says, proclaiming to be wise, they became as fools. Guys, two undeniable facts. There is a God and you're not him. Amen? And he's way smarter than you. And he created you in his image. And it was not lightning hitting a puddle. It did not go from the goo to the zoo to you. Amen? God created you in his image. And he's a perfect, holy, loving God. And so we see here very clearly that he's, he's exhorting them that, look, you were chosen by God. Here they are in a place of terror and torment. He goes, guys, God chose you. You're one of his kids. He's got his eyes on you. Can you believe that the God who created everything treasures you? You are his treasured possession. You know what, I'm glad I have kids for many, many reasons, but I'll tell you, having children has taught me unconditional love like nothing else. And you know what, I love my kids so much I would die for them, and I think I'm an imperfect dad who totally blows it. How much more does perfect holy God love us? Guys, remember that. This is an exhortation and a word of encouragement to them that God had chosen them according to what? His foreknowledge. He knows everything. He knew man would sin. He knew he would send his son to redeem us. And again, we could talk about this for the next 2,000 years, and that's probably how long the debate's been going on. But look at it in the light of Scripture. We're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, chosen by God based on the fact that he knew who would receive his gift of salvation. Amen? He knew. Well, he said, well, that doesn't seem right. If God already knew who would choose him, God knew who would choose him, but he didn't make anybody choose. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man can absolutely coexist. While some things are hard for me to get, that's not hard for me to get. Can God be in control and still give me free will? What's the answer? Yes, he can. Because he, according to his foreknowledge, already knew the choice you were going to make. So it says there you were chosen according to what? His foreknowledge. He knew if you were going to respond to the gospel. He did not make you respond to the gospel. He did not choose, because guys, here's the problem. If God chose some for heaven and chose some for hell with no free will, that's not the God of love and grace and mercy of the Bible. Amen? If you read all of Scripture, it is desire that none should perish, no, not one. Does the Bible say that or not? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever. It doesn't use the word elect anywhere in there, does it? The chosen, the predestined, none of that, right? Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. The Pope of the day, if you will. The most religious man on the planet. He comes to Jesus by night. The first episode of Nick at Night, right? He comes to Jesus by night. 
a youth pastor, sorry. He, came to, he comes to Jesus by night, and when he gets there, he's there because he doesn't want anybody else to see him, and he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus didn't say, hey, you're one of the elect, don't worry about it. Is that what he said? He didn't say, hey, well, if you've been predestined, then you'll get to go. If you're predestined for hell, too bad, sorry. I don't know how it's going to work out for you. That's not what it says. His entire conversation is what? You must be born again. His entire conversation is on the, the response and the responsibility of man. Nicodemus, my desire is that none should perish. But you know what? You have to believe in your heart and confess your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. You must be born again. You must give your life to the Lord. Guys, we will not get into heaven by being good. Amen? The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. You know the word none? The original language means none. So here's the point. Nobody in here is righteous. Well, I, I, I don't like that. I'm, I'm new here. and I, I feel pretty good about myself. Guys, if we grade ourselves based on other people, we can all feel pretty good. But guys, Jesus Christ is the one we grade ourselves against. How are we doing? Not too good. Amen? But praise God... That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The whole focus and the emphasis of John chapter 3 is not on predestination or election. It's on, Nick, you need to get right with God. You need to confess your sin. He loves you. He's desired that none should perish, no, not one. God sent not a son of the world, condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here's the work of the Father. Election. The work of the Father. He chooses those. And, but what does he choose them based on? He chooses them based on his foreknowledge, knowing ahead of time who would respond to his grace. So the Bible clearly teaches both the sovereignty and foreknowledge of God and the free will of men, and it is wrong and contrary to Scripture to remove either one. If we take away the sovereignty of God, that's not the God of the Bible. If we take away the free will of man, that's not the God of the Bible either. Aren't you glad? Amen? You know, they'll say the atonement is only limited to the elect. You got, show me a verse in the Bible that says that. Throughout Scripture, his desire is that none should perish, no, not one. So I personally don't have a problem with God being in control and man having free will at the same time because guess what? That's what the Bible teaches. Amen? So you have free will. And he reaches out universally and says, I love you so much, I'd rather die than live without you. I sent my son to die in your place. He has taken all of his sins upon, all of your sin, past, present, and future, upon himself. He reaches out to you, God of love and grace and mercy, and says, here's the gift of salvation. Will you take it? It's offered universally. It must be accepted individually. He loves you. And you know what? God chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose, now you might say, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? Accept God, you're chosen. Amen? Well, if I, what if I don't accept him? Then you're not chosen because God knew before the foundation of the world you were going to reject him. But he did not force you to reject him or force you to accept him. His desire is that everyone in this building would go to heaven. Amen? So we got that. Is that clear? I hope. I know that's a difficult thing to understand, but the Bible teaches, yes, that God is sovereign. Yes, God is in control. Yes, God is completely and totally sovereign. And yes, man has free will all at the same time. I, that, to me, I don't see what the contradiction is in that at all. Again, because here's the, you know why we have a contradiction with it? Because we try to think with our finite minds. 
We try to go, well, how could he know? Because he's God. Amen? How could, he, how could he say stars? Boom, there they are. Amen? We're all real proud of ourselves. We get a satellite up in the sky. We've got the satellite up there. We've been working on it. Yeah. God goes, stars. <laughs> there they are, right? Like, there it is. Dry, you know, let's try to create a rainbow sometime, right? I mean, he just does it. There it is. Amen? It's the same God who's given us the promise of eternal life. He is sovereign. He is faithful. He is merciful. In Scripture, let me say one last thing about this. When you see the words election and predestination, it's always speaking of the believer. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that anyone is predestined for hell. So what is he saying? Those of us who have given our lives to him, this should be a place of assurance. The Bible says that no one will snatch us out of his hand. Amen? We don't save today and then not save and save today. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? He writes our name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he does not have an eraser. Name is written. We're going to heaven. We're adopted into his family. I love that we're adopted, Ephesians chapter 1. Because, guys, if you adopted a child, then you could not disown them. You could have a birth child and disown them, but you could never disown an adopted child. He's adopted us. He will never disown us. Guys, this is good stuff. A few amens would be good right about now. Amen? Here's the point. The point is we see the work of the Father, and it says here very clearly that the Father, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, He has elected us. Then it says this, in sanctification of the Spirit. Now, God the Father elected us, and the Spirit, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, sanctifies us. What does that word sanctify mean? It just means to be set apart. When you were born again, before you knew Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you're here this morning and you do not know God, you are spiritually dead. I'm not saying that to offend you. I'm saying that because I love you and the Lord loves you and he doesn't want you to leave here like that. Amen? If we don't know God, the Holy Spirit is out here. He's with us. The world calls him their conscience. Why does the world know that there's any type of right and wrong? Without the Holy Spirit, there is, no, there is no absolute, there is no morality, there is no right and wrong apart from God. Amen? Because the thoughts and intents of the heart of man are on wicked continually. It's only when God has an influence that there's any right or wrong. So prior to salvation, the Holy Spirit is with everyone, and that's why there's an understanding that there is a right and wrong. But guess what, guys? When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, He goes from being with us to being in us. Amen? And now, what happens? My priorities change. My passions change. My desires change. Do I still sin? What's the answer? Yes. But now when I sin, I'm convicted. Now when I sin, my heart is broken. But you know what's interesting? The Bible doesn't always talk about the Holy Spirit being with us and in us. But Jesus also said, after breathing the Spirit in them in John 21, He said, go and tarry. Go and wait. And not many days from now, the Holy Spirit shall come what? Upon you. So the Spirit can be with us, in us, or upon us. And that's what we call the filling of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I don't care what you call it, just get it. Amen? (laughs) And here's the point. The sanctification process, the being set apart, the being different from the world is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. You've heard me say this many times. Jesus said, of men born among women, none was greater than who? John the Baptist. So Jesus said it, so we know that's true. So apart from Jesus Christ, no man greater than John the Baptist. But what did John the Baptist say? I must decrease that he might increase. 
John the Baptist said, I have to die to myself and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the translation of that. Guys, less of us and more of him. The sanctification process is becoming more and more like Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit rules and reigns in our life. God the Father chose us, elected us, according to his foreknowledge, to be his kids. The Holy Spirit came to live inside us, set us apart unto him, draws us and conforms us into the image of his Son, convicts us when we sin, comforts us in times of difficulty. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us? Amen? Praise God. Guys, you know, there's no one else that would even try to say that. There's no other belief or religion or anything out there. You know, we are not God, but God lives in us. Amen? In the person of the Holy Spirit. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, not an essence, not a vapor, right? Not a, the Holy Spirit, because we can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third part of the Trinity. Now, finally, let's close with this. We've seen the work of the Father, election. The work of the Spirit is sanctification. And finally, for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The work of the Father, election. The work of the Spirit, sanctification. And the work of the Son, redemption. Amen? You know what it means to redeem? It means to buy something back to pay the price that that person could not pay. Guys, we were in debt to our sin, and the bill had more zeros behind it than we could ever pay. We couldn't even get close to begin to paying for it. And you know what happened? God the Father sent His Son, and He came and went before the judge, His own dad, and paid our price on our behalf. Amen? But notice how it happened. With what? The sprinkling of the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know what? The sanctification process continues on until we're glorified one day. Amen? It's a work that continues. Hopefully you're closer to God today than you were six months ago. Amen? If you're not as close to God as you used to be, who moved? Amen? God did and you did. So we press in. We're as close to God as we want to be, but the Holy Spirit is doing a work in us. But guys, here's the great news. While the sanctification process continues until glorification, when it comes, and I'm sorry I'm using all these words, but justification, just as if I never sinned, finished. Amen? It's not an ongoing work. It's done. What did Jesus say on the cross? Tetelestai, which means it is finished. It also means paid in full. Aren't you glad? So the debt's been paid completely, and now we've been justified. We're going to heaven. No one can snatch us out of his hands. We're children of the king. It doesn't matter, though the world slay me, I will trust in him. They can't threaten me with heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, so bring it on. Amen? And that's the exhortation. You're being persecuted. God's still in control, guys. They're coming after you. Greater is he that is in us and he that is in the world. You have nothing to worry about. You've been justified. You're being sanctified. His blood has washed away your sin. And you know what? The Father chose you. You're one of his elect according to his foreknowledge. It didn't get any better than that. Amen? What a glory. Now again, imagine getting this letter. Woe is me. Oh no. What are we going to do? And all of a sudden you get the letter. You're a child of the king. Oh, yeah, that's right. Spirit of the living God is sanctifying you. Oh, that's true. 
You know what? Your sin has been washed away by the shedding of blood of the Son of God. Oh, that's true. You know what? Nothing else matters. Get my eyes off of the trials. Get my eyes off the circumstances and put them on Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, those waves and that storm is no big deal in comparison to the greatness of our God. We have been justified. Our sin is forgiven. Praise God for the blood of the Lamb. Amen? You know, in the Old Testament, I'm almost done. In the Old Testament, they go in, you remember this, on the Day of Atonement, and they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Remember there was a seat, the Ark of the Covenant, that covered the law. Because if you look straight into the law, you would die. Because the law is a taskmaster, the Bible says, that leads us to the cross. All the law does is reveal we're sinners in need of a Savior. The law can't save you. But you know what? Mercy was covering the law. And the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled on that mercy seat. And it's a picture of the cross of Calvary, but it's also a picture of the resurrection. Because if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant had an angel at the head and at the foot. And when the women came that early that morning and they looked into the tomb, what did they see? An angel at the head, an angel at the foot, and the blood-soaked clothes of our Savior right in the middle, just like a picture of the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement. Guys, it's all about Jesus. It always has been. It's always pointed to Him. And guys, we've been justified. Our sins are washed away. Guys, that's something to jump up and down about, amen? I mean, we ought to be excited about who we are in Christ. So, the work of the Father, He chose us. The work of the Spirit, He is sanctifying us. The work of the Son, He has redeemed us. He has washed away our sin. And we have real peace, not based on our circumstances, but a right standing before Him. And finally, He says this, grace to you and peace be multiplied. And I love this because grace is unmerited favor. It's us being given something we don't deserve. In Greek, the word is charis. Grace to you, he says. Hey, you're all bummed out. Grace to you. And then the word for peace is shalom in Hebrew. So he's speaking both in a term for the Greeks and the Hebrews, because there is no more, you know, slave nor free, barbarian nor Scythian, Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ. Amen? And he says, and notice it's always this way in Scripture, because of grace there is peace. Amen? It's because of grace that we can know peace. It's the grace of God, the unmerited favor, us being given what we don't deserve, that we can have that peace that surpasses all understanding. Amen? And so he says to them, guys, I know what you're going through, but grace, be multi- grace and peace be multiplied to you. May it be growing in you because of who you are in Christ, because of the promise of 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Amen? May we walk in his grace and know of his love and his mercy. Praise God as peace continues today to be multiplied in us. And the true source of peace, again, it's not an absence of war, you guys. It's right standing before God. Do you know the Prince of Peace this morning? He's the one. He's the reason you can have peace if you know him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this letter of exhortation and encouragement written 2,000 years ago that applies so perfectly to us this morning. Lord, we know that we're here by divine appointment. Nothing happens by chance in your kingdom. And Lord, that this word of encouragement was for everyone who's here. Lord, I pray if anybody here this morning doesn't know you, that even now, Lord, you'd open their eyes to the truth of who you are. Father, not 
asking them to join a church or an organization, but simply, Lord, to confess their sin and a need for a Savior. Your word is so clear. If we would just confess with our mouths, just confess with our mouths, believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. Lord, it's not our good works, but it's your great grace. If that's your desire this morning, with every head bowed, be praying for those who may not know the Lord. If that's your desire, you want to know for sure you're going to heaven. You want these promises to apply to your life. The Bible says, Jesus, the word of God says, if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that Jesus Christ is Lord. You just confess him as Lord of your life. Ask him to come in and rule and reign. His Holy Spirit will come to live inside of you. You'll have the promise of heaven. And he will have chosen you before the foundation of the world. If that's your desire, I'm going to just ask you something real simple. The Bible says, confess me before men. I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. You deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. If that's your desire, to know for sure that you're going to heaven, to give your life to Jesus Christ before you leave for this morning, I just want you to raise your hand right where you are so I can pray with you. God bless you, brother. Anybody else? Today's the day of salvation. Don't leave here without him. He loves you guys. Anybody else? Heavenly Father, I just lift up this brother to you, Lord. I thank you and praise you. Father, I thank you that your word says that when one person gives their life to you, all the angels in heaven rejoice. We thank you that even now, with that simple act of confession, there's a party up in heaven. Father, I pray that you'd be with our brother even now. Father God, that you would, as you promised in your word, make him a new creation. Fill him to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Lord, may he know even this moment, Lord, he's forgiven. We thank you and we praise you for that awesome promise in your word. Lord, for the rest of us who are here, for those who are here who may not know you, Lord, I pray that even now you continue to draw them unto yourself. Lord, for those of us who have been walking with you, maybe we're struggling, going through a difficult time, Lord, may these be words of encouragement this morning. Father, to know that you, you have adopted us into your family. You've chosen us. We're your kids. It doesn't get any better than that. And Lord, you fill us with your spirit. We have the promise of heaven. Lord, may we live every day in light of eternity. We love you, we praise you, we worship you. You are a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and worship the Lord.